This is a reminder you're listening to the delayed broadcast here on Faith FM. If you would like to listen to the live show live and participate in the quiz and the prizes and all the other fun things that happen on Faith FM Breakfast Show, then simply download the Faith FM app available on Apple or Android platforms. Welcome back, everybody. This is Encounter with God time. You're listening to The Breakfast Show, and we are about to get into our Bible study. You're with the double L team this morning, Lyle and Liam. Um, before we get into the Bible study, we have another clue for our quiz. Clue number three. Oh, sorry, we've already had clue number three. Clue number four. The chapters in Galatians that lists the fruit of the Spirit. So the chapter in Galatians that lists the fruits of the Spirit. What number is that? <laughs> it's, not, nah, it's not correct again. Stabs in the dark here. Oh. I'm not getting it. Anyway, um, we've got a message here that's come from uh, Rena Milley where she is asking for prayer for her husband who is unwell. There's a fairly lengthy message from uh, a little bit earlier on, just going through some of the issues there. But we're going to stop and pause for a moment. We like to pray for our listeners whenever they uh, contact us with a prayer request, and we're going to pray for Rena. Father in heaven, we pray that you'll be with Rena in a very special way at this particular time. We pray that you'll be with her husband in even a more powerful way to bring him healing, give them both courage and strength to deal with the issues that they're facing right now, and be very close to them by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, it is Bible study time, and because it is Bible study time, we're going to turn our Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, and I've been working on something here, a bit of a project that I've been working on over the weekend in relationship to Daniel chapter 11, because it is a very detailed and a very complex chapter, and it's full of so much interesting history. It's one tough cookie to crack. It is a tough cookie to crack. How have you been going with it? I'm getting there. It's, 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 it, I thought that I'd be able to sort of just breeze through it and and sort of oh yeah, that's what this says. And, and you this is thought the, wrong. I thought very wrong. <laughs> I've had to reread and and yeah. So so I'm, basically, what I decided to do was was to do an expanded version, right? So, or to do an expansion of Daniel chapter eleven. I see. To help me get my head around it, it's one of those chapters that I have given a Bible study on this chapter. In 25 years of ministry, I've given a Bible study on this chapter twice. Right. I've studied it in depth a couple of times, gone through it, got to the end of it and gone, yep, okay, I've got my head around the gist of this, moved on to something else. And when you move on to something else and you don't actually spend a bit of time on it, you often, you just start to lose. You lose what you've learnt and you lose the, the, the track of it. And so it becomes one of those things that sits in the back of your mind and go, yeah, i got a rough idea of where Daniel 11 goes and what it's all about. But if you were to ask me a specific question, you know, what's verse 18 all about, I'd be like, um, <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> Even though Daniel is uh, one of my favourite chapters of the Bible. And so in more recent years, I have taught this a couple of times in class, and this time I, I'm looking for a way of teaching Daniel 11 in a way that makes sense. Right. So I decided to do an expansion. Uh-huh. I started on this Saturday morning yep. before I went to church. I did the first five verses. Yep. I ran them past my wife who is you know, not particularly into history and she really liked it. So that was super encouraging. 
And so then I came back from church and I got up to verse 17 by the time Saturday night came. And, you know, I'm averaging about two verses an hour. Yeah. Sometimes doing better than that. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, as I said, there's a detailed, there's a detailed stuff. It's a steady, steady trick. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you the expanded. So this is Daniel 11, expanded by the hindsight of history with Lyle Southwell's uninspired historical <laughs> observations added in. Here we go. So you can follow along in your Bible. If you're at home uh, and you're not driving, then feel free to follow along in your Bible. This is taking from the New King James Version. I did depart from my favorite tried and tested King James Version to because it's just like, well, hey, I, I, I recognize that there are just a few of us out there who just love the KJV. Um, so I did it from the New KJV. So you might want to... Look up on the, in, in the new KJV on your phone there, Liam, to follow along if, if you'd like. But it goes a little bit like this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through some verses and then we'll, we'll come back and we'll talk about them. So it reads kind of like this. You in verse 1 there yet? Almost. Um, All right. Daniel 11, verse 1. You can let us oh, know when you get there. That's truth. Yeah, you see, digital Bibles are so slow. This is the problem that with digital I did, Bibles. When, when we first started, I did notice that I flicked a lot quicker in the paper version than I am <laughs> right now. All right, so Daniel chapter 11. First one. Verse one. NKJV. New King James. All right. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, the son of Astyages, Cyrus's maternal uncle, I, even I, Gabriel, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will tell you the truth. So this is the expanded version. Here we go. If if you if I gave it to you in paper, you know, I'd put all of the expansions, the uninspired expansions yep. in, in different colour. Yeah. So you'd be able to see it. Uh, but now I will tell you the truth. After Cyrus, who now reigns, behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. Cambyses the second, Smyrdas the imposter, and Darius the Great. And the fourth, Xerxes will make Esther his queen and be far richer than them all. By his strength through his riches, he shall stir up the realm of the Greeks, conquering all the tribes north of the Corinthian Isthmus before losing at the Battle of Salamis. And then I've got verse 2a, which is completely not in the Bible, yeah. even remotely. Uh-huh. Now, since we have mentioned the Greeks, let's skip the next nine Persian rulers who are of little consequence to the history of your people and discuss how Hellenic culture came to dominate the world. Verse 3. Oh, dear. A mighty Greek king... He's following... He's supposed to be following along. Yep. A mighty Greek king called Alexander the Great shall arise, and after his father Philip has united the Greek cities, he shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will conquering all of Persia, the Levant, Egypt, and even part of India. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four points of the compass, but not among his descendants, nor according to his dominion which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted and given to his generals. Cassander will take Greece, Lysimachus will take Thrace, Seleucus will take most of the north, including Persia, Babylon, and the Levant. Ptolemy will rule over Egypt. Now, for the sake of geographical simplicity, I will orient the prophecy in relationship to Jerusalem as it can only be approached from either the north or the south. Explanatory note right there. Very Verse good. 5. Ptolemy, the ruler of Egypt in the south, shall become strong, as well as one of Alexander's other princes, Seleucius. 
And after Lysimachus has conquered Cassander, Seleucus shall gain power over both their territories and rule the entire northern section of the Greek Empire and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. So there's where I got up to from uh, early in the morning because I always wake up early because I do a breakfast show. <laughs> and you'll be starting to do that, you know, kind of this week. Uh, your body clock will kick in and when it comes to sleep-in day, it's just never going to happen for you. <laughs> but this is kind of where I got up to and that was the section that I ran past my wife and she kind of liked it, so I decided to keep going with it. But what we're going to do is we're going to stop and spend a bit of time on these. Very good. I have to apologise. The bit that I laughed at was when you started saying things in your version that didn't quite... the the, the the way it was said didn't quite match. Uh, I think it was the, the verse 2, part A. Um, okay, yes. And you said something about skipping, and I just, I, I wouldn't imagine hearing that in the Bible. And yeah, like somebody who, it's, like, it's not, it, it's, not, it's not New King James language. No, no. Um, I thought it was very amusing. But no, I did understand it, and um, it, was, it, it was good to sort of broaden. Uh, it, it, it helped, yeah. Yeah, it brings it, it, brings it to light. And so if we look at these verses right here, and so far we've looked at verse 1 and 2 last week, well, we kind of got up to Darius the Great. We didn't cover Xerxes yet. Yep. So Darius the Great. And so what you've got basically is this stirring up against the realm of Greece. So this week, i just got to let everybody know, this week we're going to cover a lot of history, particularly in the first three days. Lots of history in the first three days. And then we're going to start to get into some prophecy further towards the end. We mentioned the Darius the Great and how things start to stir up against the Greeks. It, it works a little bit like this. There are a number of Greek cities that are not in Greece. Right. In fact, Greeks kind of go to different parts of the world and they build cities and they have colonies in various areas and then they sort of become you know, mutually supporting of whatever city they come from in Greece and as a culture, they kind of stick up for each other, but that's about as far as it goes. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. So the Greeks have, at this stage in history, are a very warlike culture. Yeah. And as a result of that, they're going to go on to rule the world. They are constantly at war, but mostly at war with each other. Mm. They are very tribal in the way they approach things. So, you know, if you, you belong to this city or you belong to that city or you belong to the other city and the cities all go to war with each other and the cities yeah. are all well defended and you've got Sparta who has uh, no walls on their cities at all, they're like, why do we need walls? We have warriors. So this is the kind of mindset that the Greeks have. They are a militaristic culture. Yeah. Then you've got so you've got some Greek cities that are in Asia Minor. So uh -huh. some Greek cities in Asia, which is modern day Turkey, and on occasions they will rebel against the Persians and get the Persians upset. And so you know Darius the Great had uh, this Greek city. Um, I think it was Ion, or I think it was called, I can't remember the exact name of the rebels against him. He goes down there and crushes the rebellion, and you know the Greeks support this rebellion and. Uh, he's sort of like, well, that's interesting. The Greeks supported the rebellion and they sent Greeks across from Europe into Asia to support this rebellion. And so he decides to create, 
teach the Greeks a lesson. Now, what you're going to find with the Persians is when they come into contact with the Greeks, initially, you know, and the Persian Empire is massive, yep. and, and, and the Greek cities are disunited, small, tribal, warring clans, you could say. They're civilized because they live in cities and, you know, they're very, very highly developed culture, but they're all fighting each other. And when the Persians go across there, every time the Persians go to Europe, they just have the worst luck. Yeah, right. So luck is a thing that does definitely come to play in war. Now, when you read history, and I know I'm going to probably get some Greeks and probably some Macedonians who are going to get upset at with me at this, but when you read history, you're going to find that in warfare, luck counts. Yeah. You can never rely on luck, but it counts. It helps. And when the Persians go to, to, to Europe, they get bad luck every time they go across. You know, they'll build a bridge across the Bosphorus and it'll get wiped out by storms. They'll build another one and they'll go across on that bridge and then as soon as they get across the other side, it will get wiped out by a storm. They will send fleets across there and they'll try and f- sail fleets around the Greek, you know, coastline and the fleets will get wiped out by a storm. And it's like almost every time they turn around, they get smashed. And so Darius has got, you know, he sends... It's kind of like an expeditionary force. Yep. It's not a major army by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, when they, when they land on the beach at Marathon, they are, you know, they, they, they outnumber the, the Greeks, you know, massively. And they're just sort of, you know, kind of relaxed on the beach there, not expecting the Greeks to do anything but to retreat into their city and find safety. When the Greeks do the opposite, they, they, they get themselves inspired, they, yep. they, fire, they, they have some fiery speeches. And they charge the Persians, and the Persians, they're not in any defensive, you know, position whatsoever at all, and suddenly they've got these phalanxes of, uh, of Greek citizens from the city of Athens charging down at them. They've suddenly got to pick up swords and start fighting, and that is complete disorganization and complete rout of the Persian forces. So... Xerxes, of course, Darius goes back after all of this and is like, okay, we're going to have to go over there and do this properly. You know, let's not be sending small expeditionary forces across. Let's not do this in a way that is going to um, fail. Yeah. Let's let's do this properly. They want it to be done. But then he dies. Yeah. And Xerxes comes to the throne. And so it's left up to Xerxes. And he has a whole bunch of rebellions all over the place to put down to keep the Persian Empire together. And once he's got the Persian Empire stabilized, it's like, okay, now we're stable here. It's time we went and did something about the Greeks. Yeah. And, of course, he goes down there. He invades Greece. And as we mentioned, he conquers everything north of the Corinthian Isthmus. Uh, including burning Athens in revenge for what had taken place under Darius' father's rule. And, of course, we need to remember that Xerxes is an actual blood descendant of Cyrus, unlike Darius, who went to great lengths to show that he was somehow connected to Cyrus. But Xerxes, he's, he legitimate, legitimately is. and um, And then, of course... Xerxes gets his entire fleet wiped out at the Battle of Salamis. And the Greeks managed to pull off an incredible, you know, uh, naval victory right there. And without the Persian fleet, they have no supplies. They are they're forced to retreat into northern Greece, Macedonia. 
Uh, they stay there. Xerxes goes back, leaves an army there. But then that army that he leaves behind to hold the Greek territory gets defeated in the following year. And so the Greeks suddenly come onto the scene as being a group of people who really know how to fight. And this is going to develop over a number of years. In fact, the Persians are going to call on the Greeks and to use them as mercenaries in the future. And you can read Xenophon. You know, Xenophon is a part of a Greek army in Persia fighting on the side of, I think it was Cyrus III, uh, in a civil war. And then, of course, you know, Cyrus III gets killed, and so they're kind of like, well, what do we do now? Um, and they, that's, you have the story of Xenophon and how he takes a long time to get home. And so, yeah, these small city-states that really, really know how to fight are sort of starting to, starting to come on the scene. And so the prophecy skips down to Alexander the Great, a mighty Greek, Greek king called Alexander the Great. This is verse 3, shall arise. And it's his father Philip who unites the Greek cities, for the very first time. They've never been united. They've never been a nation before. And there's much debate over whether he was, was he Macedonian or was he Greek? And the answer is kind of both. Because it was Greek culture, it was Greek worship, it was Greek um, systems of government, it was Greek philosophy, it was Greek language. But it was the region of Macedonia. And of course, Macedonia was kind of like the frontier of Greece. They were kind of the barbarians on the northern border, so to speak. But they are able to, Philip is able to unite the Greek cities and to start planning an invasion of Asia. Now, how far he thought he could take that, you know, we don't know. You know, was he really, did he really think he could take on the entire Persian Empire and take the entire Persian Empire? Was Philip, you know, a little bit more of a realist and, or was he just going to go over there and give them a bloody nose? What is, was he going to take part of, you know, Asia Minor or was he going to take the entire Persian Empire? We don't know exactly what Philip was thinking because Philip is assassinated. You know, Alexander's a young man. He's your age. Yeah. And he comes to the throne. And the th as soon as he comes to the throne, he's like, well, my father Philip was, you know, of course, he's placed in power by his mother, Olympias. Very, very interesting person um, who just throughout her entire life tries to control Greek affairs. He has this Greek army and he has this united Greece. And he's like, well, let's do something with it. My father was planning to invade Asia. So let's invade Asia. In fact, let's invade all of it. Because that's the way that Alexander thinks. And, of course, you know, they sail across the Bosphorus and uh, about to, before they even land on Asia, on what's modern-day Turkey, you know, Alexander takes a spear, throws it into the beach, and claims all of it for Greece. He then goes on to, in three successive battles, defeat the Persians and then conquer their entire empire 
expanding it dramatically all the way to India. And the only reason that he doesn't stop expanding the empire is because eventually his generals and his soldiers have been like, we've been away from home for years. We've been gone for like seven years. We want to go back. We want to see our wives. We want to see our children. We want to see our families. We're not going any further. The army almost mutinies against him in a kind of a way. They say, no, we're not going any further. We're not going to conquer. We're not going to you know, go and take on the Chinese and so forth because you know, Alexander probably would have uh, just kept going if you had allowed him to do so. All right, we're going to listen to the song uh, This Kingdom right now. This is brought to us by Jeff Bullock. God's righteousness revealed The Son of Man The Son of God His kingdom comes Jesus Redemption Listening to Jeff Bullock with uh, This Kingdom. Let's have a clue for our quiz. What have you got for us there, Liam? Clue number five. The number of New Testament books written by John. What number of books has John written in the New Testament? Well, that one will give it away, won't it? Uh, 1-800-324-324. 
843 is the number to call or text us on 0491-064-669 if you know the answer. And Lyle has gotten it correct. So there we go. And if you do call in, you'll be getting Patriarchs and Profits by Ellen White. Okay, so this classic really begins with the history of the controversy between Christ and Satan before it even reaches our world, traces down through the history of God's people in the early ages and is an absolutely fantastic read. We are in Daniel chapter 11. We are in the middle of verse 3. We are talking about Alexander the Great and the world that he conquers. It's interesting that as Alexander the Great is conquering the world, of course, the whole process of, you know, the Persian Empire included Palestine, yep. Judah, where God's people live. Mm-hmm. The story of what takes place there is worth mentioning again because as Alexander the Great approaches the city of Jerusalem, this is a city that is an absolute brute of a fortress. He can't have it in his rear as he takes on Egypt. That you know, That's something that uh, no military f- commander can afford to have. And so he calls on them to surrender, and the Jews come out to him. They have a bit of a discussion. The Jews are like, well, actually we can't because the Persians have been really good to us. You know, you think about it. Daniel was Prime Minister of the Persian Empire. Mordecai was Prime Minister of the Persian Empire. Esther was Queen of the Persian Empire. Cyrus, Darius and Artaxerxes all made decrees in favour of the Jews to rebuild their temple and city and restore their government. All of this was given to them by the Persian Empire. And so they feel a level of allegiance to the Persian Empire. Because of that level of allegiance, they're like, well, we can't really break our treaty with the Persians. However, any city that has refused to break their treaty with the Persians up until this point has been flattened by Alexander. You know, you take the city of Tyre, for instance, where he took the entire city, pulled it apart brick by brick and threw it into the ocean. He scraped the soil off the surface back to bare bedrock And where the city used to be, he sowed it with salt so that nothing would ever grow there. Right. Alexander was not the kind of person that you messed around with. And this was the message that he was giving. And when he comes to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem says, like, yeah, you know what? We're not going to break our allegiance to Persia either. His generals expect the same kind of treatment for Jerusalem. He is going to flatten the place. This place is going to cease to exist. He is going to do, you know, he's basically going to do the American thing and bomb them into the Stone Age. But he doesn't. No. He travels down to Jerusalem, more or less, you know, with a few close attendants. He goes into the city and he worships the Jewish god Yahweh in the temple. Right. Now, why on earth would Alexander do that? Not only that. Not only that. That's not where the story ends. He goes down to Egypt. He leaves this. He leaves Jerusalem in his rear. He just leaves it there and conquers Egypt, of course. Once he's done that, he establishes a city. This was something that Alexander used to do. He, he established 16 cities during his lifetime, and he called them all Alexandria because, you know, he wasn't at all. Loves to let people know where he's been. Um, sold on himself. Um, <laughs> 
But he names this city Alexandria. It's still there today. It's the one out of the 16, it's the only one that's still left. <laughs> he establishes it as a university city. Right. So it's going to be a college city. Yeah, something like Armadale or something like that. It's college city. It's what it's based around. Um, and he then, you know, it's going to be a centre of Greek learning and Greek philosophy. It's obviously going to be heavily influenced by Egyptian learning and Egyptian philosophy. But he then establishes a permanent scholarship for young Jewish men to come down there and to study at that university every year. Really? In perpetuity. So why would Alexander do that? Why doesn't he just flatten Jerusalem like everything else that he has come across? Does he see potential there? The answer is very simple. The high priest, at the time of Alexander's approach, as the Jews went out to have a chat with Alexander, took with him a copy of the book of Daniel. Really? And read in the prophecy that we are reading right here. And when he read in that prophecy and showed him in four different places that the Greeks were going to conquer the world, and that this had been written in a time when Greek was as significant in the world as New Zealand. <laughs> so go to New Zealand. One day you will conquer the United States. Just keep keep that in mind. But it was kind of like New Zealand. It was kind of like saying that, you know, uh, a couple of hundred years from now, you know, three, four hundred years down the track from now, New Zealand is going to conquer the United States. Yeah. That was what it was like. And when, when, when Nebuchadnezzar reads that, sorry, when, when, when Alexander reads that, you know, written during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, he recognizes that the Jewish God, whoever this Jewish God is, the Jewish God has predicted that he would rise to power. Yeah. And so he honors that God rather than destroying that city. And he doesn't make the Jews break their alliance to Persia. He just wipes out the Persians so that the alliance is null and void. Right. Um, so this is this is what is taking place anyway. So Alexander goes on and he conquers the world. We talked about that. He comes back to Babylon. He is a little bit out of favor with the Greeks because he's kind of established himself in Asia and he kind of really likes Asia. And it looks like he's going to stay in Babylon. And Babylon is the greatest city on the planet. I mean, there is no city anywhere like Babylon. Alexander has never seen anything like Babylon in his entire life. And the Greeks are thinking, saying, well, you know, you should be marrying a Greek wife and you should be having Greek children and you should be coming back to Greece and you should be, you know, making Greece the center of the world. And he's setting himself up in Babylon and he's having other wives who are not Greek wives, not born in Greece, and having children with them. And it's creating a bit of friction back home, but then he dies. And there's a whole bunch of different theories about how he died. It's most likely that he drank himself to death. He was one of these people who sort of only ever got drunk once. Right. And just stayed that way his whole life. Once he was there, the he Greeks, didn't want to leave. The Greeks had a drinking culture which was just incredibly damaging to their health and one of the reasons why they lived such short lives where it was part of Greek culture to have drinking competitions. Right. And they would regularly, it was a sign of status if you could drink everybody else under the table. Did they and have so, anything to do with Ireland? Well, you know, there's a few different other... There's a number of drinking cultures from around the world that <laughs> have sort of 
you know, pattern themselves after that. He, of course, has inherited this and it continues to be a status symbol. Probably doesn't actually realize just how damaging this is to his health. Uh, there may have been a combination with malaria. There may have been several other you know, issues that arose at this particular time and he dies and rather than giving the kingdom to any of his sons, he says, no, the kingdom will go to the strongest. Right. Natural selection. They can fight over it. Uh, and whoever is worthy will rule the kingdom. And this is exactly what happens in natural selection works by breaking the kingdom up. This is Adam Baker with Build Your Kingdom. <laughs> for a way to turn your life experience into an enriching gift for helping those around you? A counselling degree at Avondale College of Higher Education could provide you a great foundation to assist others through life's difficulties. Study in a personalised environment alongside a fantastic support network and community on our Lake Macquarie campus. Apply to study counselling today at counselling.avondale.edu.au. It's higher education designed for life. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. Are drugs or alcohol a problem in your life? Alcohol Drugs Assist, or ADA, is a 12-step recovery program designed to help you escape the hold of addictions in a friendly and judgment-free environment. ADA meets regularly, and if you'd like to attend, give Peter a call or text on 0487 907 879. That's 0487 907 879.
not the dumb thing Don't look too long They'll think something's wrong Is it better I just keep moving on
Welcome back, everybody. You were listening to Stones of Eden with How Long Will It Be? Of course, once again, a local group. If you'd like to hear them sing, just join us at the Maitland Seventh-day Adventist Church on a Saturday morning. Regular um, performers there at Maitland, members of that particular congregation. What have we got for our quiz? Well, quiz hasn't been answered yet. Not quite. It's uh, it, th- and this is the last clue. So if we don't get it now, I, we, yeah. Anyway, I am either four, five, or ten. So if it, the number which, of which? New Testament books written by John, the chapter of Galatians that lists the fruit of the Spirit, Joseph chose this number of his brothers to represent them before Pharaoh. The number of times Paul was given thirty-nine lashes by the Jews, Benjamin received this many times the amount of food that his brothers received when visiting Egypt. All of these numbers, it is the same, and it is either four, five, or ten. If you think you know the answer, give us a call at one eight hundred Faith FM one eight hundred three two four eight four three, or send us a text at zero four nine one zero six four six six nine. Okay, what have we got for question of the day? Question of the day comes in from Darren. This is uh, off the back of what we were speaking last week about uh, wine and where it all comes from. Uh, continuing on with the theme of wine, as I, yeah, sorry, uh, in the Bible, why does the Roman Catholic Church traditionally and steadfastly hold to the belief and teaching that during the Eucharist, the wine is literally and miraculously transformed into the blood of Christ, and the bread uh, slash water becomes the literal flesh and body of Christ, aka transubstantiation? When and where does this teaching originate, and how is this belief justified? When and where? Do, uh, yeah, there we go. Okay, so the origin of the teaching comes from um, the worship of Mithra, and the worship of Mithra was actually a Persian religion. Yep. Uh, it goes back to the ancient Babylonian religion of Nimrod, and it works a little bit like this. If you're going to take the to receive the power of God, you need to be able to actually get that, get part of that God somehow into your body. The tradition that is found in many different uh, religions from around the world, you'll even find the same concept coming through with cannibals, for instance, uh, who believe that when they eat their enemies, they are taking the power of their enemies into themselves and it makes them more powerful. And so the concept was basically is the concept of eating the God, very, very widespread in the ancient world, in the pagan world. Um, But Mithra in particular, that was very popular in Rome, you would eat a wafer, that was round in shape of the sun to symbolize the sun god, and by so doing you would take the power of that god into yourself. Right. So that's the origin of it. The origin in the Bible, or the biblical justification for it, comes from this passage in Matthew chapter 26 that we're probably all familiar with in communion services, where in verse 26 it says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take it, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, and gave it to them, saying, Drink you all of it, for this is my blood. And so the Roman Catholic tradition takes the view that when Jesus did this act during the communion service, what he actually did was miraculously turn it into, it ceased to be flesh, it ceased to be bread and wine, but it became flesh and blood. Yeah. And so they're like, Yes, they were literally eating the God, so to speak, Jesus Christ. And that this then happens every time they have communion service within the church. 
Um, now, Martin Luther took a different slant on this uh-huh. because the Roman Catholic Church says that um, th- 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 their tradition is that when the priest says the certain words over the wafer, it becomes the body of Christ. Yeah. And is then to be worshipped as God. Um, so the priest creates his creator, more or less. Luther took a different view of it. He said Luther was like, he was all about faith. He's like, no, it's all about faith. If you have faith, then it becomes the literal body of Christ. Yeah. And so the Roman view is transubstantiation. The Lutheran view is consubstantiation. And then you have Ulrich Zwingli, who was a contemporary of Luther, and said, no, this is a symbol alone. And Luther and Zwingli had a big debate over it. And as a result of that uh, big debate, you know, they, 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 they got together, I believe it was in Switzerland, to discuss the subject. And Luther walked into the debate. And, of course, you know, these are guys that are going to sit down together and they're going to, uh, well, let's have a Bible study together and find out who's right and who's wrong. Let's be open-minded about this. And so in Luther's typical open-minded fashion, he writes down, he sits, sits down, pulls out a piece of chalk and writes on the table in front of, in front of him, this is my body. Quoting from Matthew 26. Right. Of course, Zwingli on the other side, you know, he goes with uh, John chapter 6, where the Bible says the flesh, where Jesus says the flesh, in other words, my literal body profits nothing. But it's the words that I speak unto you that you need to be eating. They are spirit and they are life. So that's John chapter 6, verse 53 through 63, where you find that whole discussion there. And so, you know, they both, they both, begin their open-minded discussion in a very closed-minded way. So you can imagine yeah. that discussion sort of, it went long, but it went nowhere. Yeah. And the Bible indicates, you know, there's nothing in the Bible to indicate, you know, any form of cannibalism taking place in the communion service. We're not eating the body of Christ. No. We are eating something that is a symbol and a reminder of what Christ did when we use those symbols. And that's one of the reasons why it's really important to... Not use bread that has a rising agent yep. or use wine that has any alcohol in it because both of those are symbols of sin in the Bible and could never have been used in the communion service. And you never give somebody you know, a glass of alcohol and then tell them, remember this. Yeah. It's kind of self-defeating. <laughs> Uh, anyway, we need to move on. We're moving, using too much time here. This is the lower lights. Brightly beams our Father's mercy. Brightly beams our Father's mercy from His light, house evermore, but to us. He gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Let the lower lights be burning, send a gleam across the way. Some poor faith. Struggling seamen, you may rescue you 
You're listening to The Lower Lights, Brightly Beams, Our Father's Mercy. As we come to the end of our show, we have a very important uh, public health announcement for elderly people within the community. Indeed. Uh, the Australian has just uh, did a little article that says, uh, Woolies launches shopping hour for elderly. Woolworth is to launch a dedicated shopping hour for the elderly each day from Tuesday until at least Friday. The store will be open from 7am to 8am exclusively for older people and the disabled. Uh, Woolworths released this on their Twitter page. I think this is a fantastic idea. And, okay, so um, Woolworths between 7 and 8 each morning, the elderly and the disabled only. Um, And this will probably continue during the... uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic we would possibly expect. Anyway, what are we giving away this morning? This morning we are giving away Draining the Sticks by Sean Booster. Okay, what's this one all about? This one is all about taking the mystery out of death and hell. Yes. 
So the mighty Styx River that you cross at the time of death, according to uh, mythology. Indeed. Let's drain that thing and let's find out what actually does happen when a person dies and what is Hellfire really all about. So if you'd like to have those questions answered, be the first caller through on 1-800-324-843 or text us on 0491-064-669. And don't forget that you need to talk faith, live faith, act faith. And you will grow strong in Jesus Christ. God be with you till we meet again.
Oh 